Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. There's a new invisible force at work in the highest ranks of corporate America, and it's behind what may be the defining scam of our era. By co-opting social causes and embracing wokery, America's biggest companies have pulled the wool over people's eyes, subverting both democracy and the free market capitalism that made the country great. But don't take my word for it. Our guest this week, Vivek Ramaswamy, has seen this phenomenon firsthand, from Wall Street internships to Ivy League classrooms, and then as the CEO of a successful pharmaceutical company, he's witnessed the emergence of the woke industrial complex. His recently released book, Woke Inc., takes us behind the scenes, revealing the inner workings of the scam, but also offering a better way forward. Well, Vivek, welcome to the CapEx podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Your book, Woke Inc., uh, came out recently, and it's about the kind of insidious way that identity politics has crept into the, the fabric of American capitalism. It's undermining its democracy, its judiciary, its, its culture. Um, could you just kind of briefly summarise your, your kind of thesis um, and what kind of inspired you to write the book? Yeah, sure. So my basic thesis is that we need to get politics out of business and we need to get business out of politics to restore the integrity of each. And what I observe in the United States now, though I think it's true in in most Western liberal democracies, is the spread of a new secular religion that posits not only a particular theory of individual identity, which says that your your identity is based on your race, your gender, and your sexual orientation, but that philosophy has now been supercharged with the potency of capitalism in the context of an arranged marriage where big business has realized that it can use those values and its role in propagating those values to deflect accountability for real issues that the old left wanted to hold business accountable for. And so big business entered a marriage with this new wing, this newly progressive wing of the left focused on identity politics, focused on race, gender, and sexual orientation, maybe climate change too, but use that to be able to effectively create a smokescreen, what I call blowing woke smoke, to deflect all kinds of ire, public ire and accountability that you used to see in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. 
And, and I argue in the book that that poses a threat to American democracy because effectively what it then demands under this new philosophy of woke capitalism or stakeholder capitalism is the idea that a small group of investors and CEOs determine behind closed doors what's good for American democracy at large. And I think, again, the same applies to the UK or to Canada too, rather than the people in the system and every citizen exercising their voice equally in the open public square. And to me, that's dividing our Western civilized society to a breaking point. It is racializing our politics. And that's a big part of why I wrote the book because I haven't seen, I haven't written about this as a researcher or a journalist. I've seen it from the inside. I wasn't born into elite America, but I have lived it for the last 15 years from places like Harvard and Yale for education to elite hedge funds to having started a successful biotech company. I have seen how that game is played where business leaders pretend like they care about something other than the pursuit of profit and power precisely to gain more of each. And I thought that that act of fundamental dishonesty actually is, is something that, you know, risk creating a real crisis of institutional and public trust. And, and I thought that the public needed to know what was going on. And that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, historically, the, the liberal left, um, many of whom would now be described as woke, had set their stall out as being very kind of anti-corporate. But I wonder what, what then is, is the quid pro quo that allows woke identitarians to, to sort of get into bed with corporations in this way? And is it, was it surprising to you the way you, you saw that change? Yes, yeah, so, so it's very much an arranged marriage. It's not a marriage of love. I, I think it's closer to mutual prostitution where each side gets something out of the trade. It's a marriage in which each side secretly has scorn for the other. There's nothing particularly woke about selling products and services for profit and competing in a marketplace as, as you, you know, the system, our system of capitalism demands. But similarly, there's nothing particularly commercial or innovative or efficient about the idea that we describe ourselves based on our race, our gender, and our sexual orientation and, and think of ourselves as either empowered or disempowered based on those characteristics. So, so it's not really a natural fit. But here's what each side gets out of the trade. Big business gets to deflect the ire of the old left in, in, the, in the wake of Occupy Wall Street. Let's just take after the 2008 financial crisis, what the old left wanted to do was to redistribute money from those wealthy corporate fat cats and give it to poor people for the benefit of poor people. Uh, agree or not, that's what the old left had to say. But if they discovered that they could then say the right things instead about talking about economic injustice or poverty, they could instead talk about racial injustice and misogyny and bigotry. If that would effectively get the new left to go away, that actually prevented them from being held accountable, not only for, for potentially past sins, but also to avoid cumbersome regulation in the form of antitrust law. I'll give you an example with Silicon Valley, where Silicon Valley has effectively agreed to censor or moderate a lot of content that the newly woke progressive wing doesn't want to see on the internet. But they don't do it for free. Their implicit expectation is that the new Democratic Party in the United States looks the other way when it comes to leaving their monopoly power intact. And indeed, it has worked. It has worked so masterfully for both sides that the rest of corporate America is following suit, where Coca-Cola would rather preach about voting laws in Georgia or teach its employees, quote unquote, how to be less white than it would contend with its own role in the nationwide epidemic of diabetes and obesity including in the very black community that it professes to care so much about. 
Nike would rather criticize slavery 250 years ago in the Western world than it would reduce its reliance on slavery in the form of slave labor in Asia to make $250 sneakers that they sell to black kids in the inner city who can't afford to buy books for school. These are the kinds of issues that effectively allow these companies, you know, Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, these are two government contractors in the U.S. that make ballistic missiles that kill thousands of people. I'm not saying that that's the right thing or the wrong thing, but there's nothing particularly woke about creating ballistic missiles that kill thousands of people, they are now talking about the white privilege inherent in their line of business because it effectively placates the left that would otherwise take issue with the core of their business. And so the general rule is if you could talk about something on the periphery of your business that doesn't have a big impact on your business to avoid talking about the core of your business in ways that could create risk, that's a net win-win for the big business side. For the woke movement in particular, this was a fringe theory in the academy what they effectively gain out of this bargain is A, money. Look at the tens of millions of dollars raised for Black Lives Matter and other causes over the course of the last year alone from corporate America. But they also gain legitimacy. The imprimatur of effectively the leaders of capitalist society lending credence to, to what they have to say. Banks and, and other institutions were happy to lend not just their money but their legitimacy to this new woke movement. But they didn't do it for free. That's effectively the the contours of this arranged marriage. Yeah, and just for our listeners, I mean, you talk about this in the book in a bit of depth, but you were very much at the sharp end of this movement yourself in that you founded a company and then um, felt that you had to step down as CEO. Could you just tell us a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, I think that, uh, first of all, a bit of, bit of background on myself. I studied as a molecular biologist at Harvard, thought I was going to be a scientist, ended up getting into the world of hedge funds and biotech investing. So I was a biotech investor with, you know, thankfully some, some significant success at that line of work over seven years from 2007 to 2014. I went to Yale Law School along the way, kept my job while retaining my job as a, as a fund manager at the hedge fund. And then I left in, 2013, in, in 2014 to found Royvent, which is a biotech company that's developed a number of medicines, several are FDA approved today, and it's a multi-billion dollar business that I led as CEO for seven years. So that's my background. What I what what began to irritate me was in 2019, I, I suddenly woke up one day and noticed that all of my peers, elite investors, CEOs, etc., were issuing nearly carbon copy statements about how they no longer were going to serve just their shareholders, but needed to serve their so-called stakeholders as well. And there was something curious about that, not inherently, but the fact that everyone suddenly was doing it at the exact same time in a way that smacked of inauthenticity. So, so I decided to write an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, which I did in February 2020, and that was going to be about the extent of it for me. Well, that generated such controversy, and you know, I, the case that I made was that this new model of so-called stakeholder capitalism threatened American democracy because it demanded that these small groups of elites determine moral questions behind closed doors rather than doing it out, out in the open where everyone's voice and everyone's vote is weighted equally. Well, it turns out that was a controversial view for a lot of people. And, you know, I think there was some backlash in the business community. And, and what I ended up discovering was that actually I, uh, you know, I could probably blow this out into a longer form essay, even, not even a longer form essay, but then maybe even a longer form book. And, and so a prominent book agent approached me on the back of that piece and said, you need to do exactly that. So, so then I decided to blow it out in a book, but I still had no plans to step down as CEO to do it. Well, the nature of the issues I was writing about became sufficiently controversial that over time, I actually began to notice that it started to have the earliest signs 
of backlash towards my business itself. And the thing I realized was that I needed to actually practice what I preached. If I said we needed to keep business separate from politics, yes, I was doing that because I wasn't using my company to foist my views onto anyone else. I wasn't foisting it onto our employees or our partners or anything else, as many business leaders do you know, today. But nonetheless, the issues I was discussing, even in my capacity as a citizen, were so contentious that there was one occasion where I actually talked about the hypocrisy of big tech and, and the way it enjoyed federal government protections while engaging in prohibited censorship. And that actually caused, shockingly, several advisors to my company to resign. And I detail that in the book. And that was a wake-up call for me to say that, look, I needed to speak in an uninhibited way as a citizen because I felt these were important issues that go to the heart of the challenges that many of us face in our time. Yet I needed to do it in a way that didn't have backlash for my business because that had an important mission of its own. So I stepped back as CEO this January. I still remain chairman of the company, but we were very clear that going forward, the voice of the company would be the voice of the new CEO who had been my longtime partner in running the company who, by the way, as a side note, has very different politics than mine, very different views on even many of the very questions we're discussing today. And I guess that's kind of the point of it all, is to say that if you're a company developing medicines, you need to be aligned on that mission, irrespective of your politics, irrespective of your views on social issues. That's, that's I think, the way our system ought to work. And, and I think I'm proud to say that's the way it's worked at our company. But nonetheless, I decided that the right thing to do was to separate my personal voice from the voice of the company. And that's what I did this January ahead of writing the book or ahead of publishing the book, I should say. And the good news is I'm now able to speak in an uninhibited way, in a way that I wasn't in my role as a CEO. And I think the right answer to our woes isn't to, uh, isn't to speak less. I think it is to speak more, to speak openly and to speak candidly. And I think that'll restore a lot of the institutional trust that we now suffer from in our, in our moment. Uh, one thing that, um, struck me um, when reading this and just generally observing America from the outside is that although the country is relatively evenly divided in terms of its so-called culture war, this sort of wokery, this stuff seems to be a bit of a one-way street. And I wonder why that is. Why isn't, it, why isn't there more of a risk for a company going out on a limb in this way? Is, is it not going to uh, put off or offend, you know, swathes of their, their potential customers who don't agree with that? Yeah, it is a bit of a curiosity. You're right about that. I think what go, I think what goes to the heart of the reason for why is a cynical arrangement where effectively big business in this country has realized that the greatest threats to big business, to the power, to the, even the economic power structures, if we're to call it that, to borrow some of the older, older left's lexicon, the economic power structures that they enjoy would be threatened by one wing of the political spectrum but less so by the other. So ironically, conservatives have actually been defenders of big business, have been defenders of the system of of modern Western capitalism, but they don't pose a threat as much to those who have enjoyed the fruits of modern Western capitalism. And so what you've seen is this curious evolution where the people who have benefited the most from being the winners in our system of capitalism need to make money off of now critiquing capitalism itself, critiquing the very system that allowed them to create the wealth and create the value that they've been able to create. And that is a bit of a curiosity, but that's effectively the new game of jujitsu that modern capitalists play is they've realized that they can effectively make money and generate greater power for themselves by critiquing themselves 
to effectively join forces with the new woke left that otherwise is empowered by them in the process through that arranged marriage, but will leave them alone. And so it's, I think, a direct feature of the fact that because conservatives, you know, both in Canada, the United States, and the UK and elsewhere, are such defenders of big business, that big business realize that they don't actually need to worry too much about shoring up their support. What they really needed to do is actually trade that off as political capital to the other side. And that's effectively where I think the movement of woke capitalism was born. Now, I think both sides are in some ways duped into submission because actually what business leaders are doing is aggregating greater political power for themselves. Liberals are duped into submission because they happen to love the woke progressive causes that these companies happen to be pushing today. But conservatives are equally duped into submission because their inner conscience tells them that the free market can do no wrong without recognizing that the free market of the kind that they idealized isn't actually the one that exists today. And actually, conservatives have spent, in my opinion, the last 40 years since the, since the Reagan and Margaret Thatcher era defending the castle of capitalism from the front door so diligently that they didn't realize that that castle was invaded through the back door by forces ranging from the woke progressive movement to the Communist Party of China, which I'm happy to talk about later. And I think the defining challenge for the future of the conservative movement is how we sterilize that castle without actually burning the whole thing down. And I think that there's now a, a nascent wing in the populist conservative movement that would rather just say, okay, burn the whole thing down with policy solutions that sound not so different than what you might hear from Bernie Sanders in the socialist wing in the United States. But I think that the right challenge is, is neither to ignore it and to preach some slogan you memorized in 1980 saying that you know the threat to capitalism comes from big government alone, but figuring out how we actually now save capitalism from itself, where the people who have been the winners in the system of capitalism itself are now betraying that system to keep their own power intact. One of the things that strikes me, and both from your own experience with Royven and, and um, from the other things you set out in the book, is that it seems now to be a sine qua non for a big American company to not just not just be neutral, but to have a, a strong position on this. My, my question to you is just how much, how much kind of effort and time does it take for a major kind of like blue chip American company to actually be working on all these diversity strategies and things like that, this? Is it, quite, is it quite an easy thing for them? Is it the equivalent of, say, turning up to a hospital as a teen volunteer and pretending to man the phones, which is another thing you talk about in the book? Yeah, I, I talk about that from some personal experiences in the book. So, so I'll, give you the, I'll give you the short answer to that. It's a good question. It's not a lot of skin off the CEO's back to pay homage to this stuff. You say the right things once in a while, the quote-unquote right things once in a while, and that's about it. It's a pretty easy job. Now, what you see, though, is after saying the right things, there's the birth of these new bureaucracies. I view them as cancerous bureaucracies in the context of large corporations. It's the equivalent to what you might worry about in the administrative state, what you call the deep state. This is what I call deep corporate. In large corporations, there's these administrative ranks in human resources organizations, et cetera, that are empowered with these new vague mandates that begins with the CEOs effectively issuing these statements to deflect accountability, to get the you know, woke progressive activists off their back, maybe even on their side. They say something, spawn into existence some sort of human resources bureaucracy to administer these new vague principles like anti-racism and fighting climate change and implementing a diversity, equity, inclusion agenda at their company, whatever, whatever parlance 
of the day the form may take, what you then have is it, a permanent bureaucracy built around administering those principles. And the problem with those bureaucrats is it, that's their full-time job. That is what they exist to do. And their purpose often runs orthogonal or even at times antithetical to the purpose of the firm itself. And that's this cancer of the managerial class. Just like I believe there's a cancer of the managerial class in big government where the administrative bureaucrats that actually wield much more power than democratically elected office holders effectively make the decisions that, that affect everyday's people, everyday individual and citizen lives. So too for the stakeholders of a corporation that are then slowly held hostage by the bureaucrats and the administrative state that exists within corporate America and within these corporate bureaucracies. And the irony, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, is in the name of preventing and fighting and stamping out the burning embers of discrimination on axes like race and gender and sexual orientation, these new bureaucracies are actually the parties responsible for perpetrating the most rampant form of discrimination we see in, in corporate America today, which in my opinion is not racial discrimination and not gender discrimination, but political discrimination. Discrimination that effectively creates a culture in which certain points of view just aren't welcome. And I think that th that new DEI church has really become a church unto itself. I tell a story in the book from the Brothers Karamazov uh, chapter Grand, called Grand Inquisitor. This is a Dostoevsky's great work where he describes the story of Christ coming back to earth in the middle of the Spanish Inquisition. And the Grand Inquisitor, the head of the church in Spain at that point in time, spots Christ on the street and recognizes him and has him arrested. And then he meets him in the prison cell and he sentences Christ to execution the next morning because he tells Christ that we, the church, don't need you anymore. In fact, you are getting in the way of what this church is supposed to carry out. And, and I think that the Grand Inquisitor reminds me of the Grand Inquisitors of our time, the Robin D'Angelo figures, the Ibram Kendi figures, and the administrative bureaucracies that, that administer their anti-racism principles in corporate America, where actually the true God may have been diversity as representative of diversity of thought at some point in time, and inclusiveness as representative of inclusiveness of all perspectives. But what we've seen today is in the name of diversity, these administrative bureaucracies actually have no tolerance for diversity of thought. They have completely sentenced true diversity of thought to death at the altar. In the name of inclusiveness, they've actually created a culture where certain points of view are actually excluded, are certainly not welcome. And I think that's the double irony is the bureaucracies that were created to safeguard principles like diversity and inclusion are actually the perpetrators for eliminating the notions of diversity and inclusion from corporate America in the name of diversity and inclusion itself. And so that's a big part of what I lay out in the book is that's not an easy challenge to fight because once these institutions come to life, they are there to stay. And, and I think that how you reshape the purpose of a company that's already gone through a cancerous overgrowth of its administrative bureaucracy that administers what for the CEO was actually a really easy thing to sort of spout off on a given day is, is a challenge that I think many institutions and organizations are gonna have to grapple with in the coming years. Hmm. Uh, the phenomenon you're talking about, very broadly speaking, some people like um, Neil Ferguson, you probably know as an um, eminent British historian, he calls it soft totalitarianism. But it's, as you mentioned before, it's not just soft totalitarianism that is involved in this wokery, because you mentioned MBS in Saudi Arabia, but also the Chinese Communist Party is, is basically having a laugh at America's expense about this. Yes, so it's not just soft power. I've heard that soft power argument. 
And any you know, people who make that argument are sympathetic to say, okay, that's still a bad thing to have cultural totalitarianism through the exercise of soft power, but actually hard power is worse. I think what they miss is hard power is in on this game too. And that includes the US government first, but let me go to before I talk about China. The US government is effectively using companies to do through the back door what the government cannot do through the front door, especially the liberal wing of US government, where there's the thing called the Constitution of the United States and the First Amendment to the Constitution that prevents the government from removing political speech, say, from the internet. Well, they've realized that they can't do it, but private companies can. But what they've done is they've turned those private companies into effectively arms of the state, where they go to the companies and they say, okay, if you don't take down hate speech and misinformation, as we, the party in power, define it, then we're going to come after you, we're going to regulate you, we're going to break you up. Oh, and by the way, that's the stick. Here's the carrot. You get this special legal protection, which in the United States is called Section 230, a, a part of a statute that gives these firms immunity, legal immunity from being sued privately in state court if they go out and do exactly what the government wants them to do. Then you, you actually have is state action in disguise, but it serves as a tripwire for the constitutional system that otherwise would have prevented the state from doing it directly. They're delegating their dirty work through the back door to private companies to do what they cannot do directly through the front door. And so one of the arguments I make in the book is that if it is state action in disguise, then actually the constitution still applies. And I think that's the beginnings of a new legal and policy movement that hasn't yet awoken up to that reality, so to speak, right? but I think needs to become, maybe I shouldn't say woke, but awake to that reality to recognize that the biggest threat to liberty and prosperity today may not just be big government acting through the front door, but this new hybrid of big government and big business that acts through the back door. And that is, that's not soft power anymore. That's governmental power. That's hard power. Well, that's the U.S. state. Turns out the Chinese Communist Party is getting in on the act too, where they've now recognized that if they can get companies to criticize the United States, but to stay silent about China, that creates a false moral equivalence between the behavior of the United States and China. And so now when Xi Jinping is pressed by, say, the EU, as he was last year, about the human rights crisis in the Xinjiang province, where there are over one million Uyghurs in concentration camps, subject to forced sterilization, communist indoctrination, and worse, the first thing that he says is that Black Lives Matter shows that the United States is no better. Now, that would be laughable, except for the fact that if Disney and Nike and the NBA and BlackRock are obsessively criticizing the United States, but are praising China at the same time, even as they commit those very atrocities, Disney actually filmed Mulan in the Shenzhen province, ground zero, the epicenter of the Uyghur human rights crisis, and thanked and praised the CCP for allowing them the privilege of doing so that creates this false moral equivalence on the global stage that equates Chinese idealism with Chinese nihilism, I should say, with Western idealism. And I think that's the greatest geopolitical threat to the next 10 years of Western civilization as we know it, is the rise of Chinese nihilism justified by the veneer of corporate progressivism. And that's a, da that's a more dangerous third actor in the arranged marriage that I described before that turned that arranged marriage into a three-party affair that's effectively using corporations as Trojan horses to undermine the United States and Canada and the United Kingdom and the Western democracies as we know them from within. And I think that's a threat that hasn't been explored by, by many thinkers yet. I think mine is the first book to describe the geopolitical consequences of wokeism and woke capitalism. And I'm afraid to say they run deep and maybe the most important consequences of all. I mean, 
reading the book, I mean, it's a, it's a tough read. I mean, I found that a lot of the time I was kind of aghast reading some of the stuff um, here. But do you retain some of the kind of archetypal American optimism about better days being ahead? And if so, where do you think that the fight back against um, this phenomenon begins? Yeah, look, I, I am an optimist and I am optimistic that the tide will turn. But I think it's going to take an, I think it's going to take the right kind of intervention that needs to not replicate the methods of the illiberal left in fighting back against that illiberalism. That is to say, I'm actually somewhat worried about the natural course of things maybe that victimhood culture from the woke progressive left spreads to the right, that cancel culture, the use of force as a substitute for free speech and open debate, that's how I define cancel culture, spreads from the illiberal left to the right. And I think the right answer cannot be to just fight fire with fire and cancel wokeism in return. I I think the right answer, especially in an American context, I'm sure there's a parallel in the UK, has to be to revive a culture that elevates our shared idealism as Americans, the shared ideals that define us as Americans in a way that dilutes the woke agenda to irrelevance. And I think that that's going to be the right answer is ultimately diluting the power of the woke agenda rather than trying to stamp it out through force because that will just inflame the movement in reverse. And, and I'll, I'll t- I mean, I, I'll tell you, I talk about in the book a little bit more about civic education, weaving civic service and shared purpose into education. I think that's a far more promising approach than banning these ideologies in the school because I think that, for example, just takes up the same illiberal toolkit in reverse. And I think that is a race to the bottom. So so those are the kinds of solutions I talk about in the book. There are also some shorter-term symptomatic therapies. I think political belief ought to be a protected class every bit as much as race, gender, sexual orientation, and religion to say that if you can't discriminate against somebody because they're black or gay or Muslim or white or Christian or Jewish or whatever, you should not be able to discriminate against somebody in the workplace just because of their political views. And either we get rid of those protected classes altogether and put those cancerous bureaucracies in the deep corporate infrastructure out of business Or if we do have that, then we ultimately have to apply those standards even-handedly. I think we need need to take a real look at federal protections given to big tech companies that allow them to operate with impunity in the event that they take down or censor content that the government would be prohibited from censoring directly. If the government uses them to censor content indirectly, they ought to face the same restraints as the federal government. So those are some legal and symptomatic therapies I talk about that create the conditions for doing the more important thing, which is reviving our shared identity as a people around ideals like the American dream, around ideals like free speech, open debate, deliberation, due process that, that define who we are in Western liberal democracies. And, and I think that's hard work, but it's the work that we need to do that will, I believe, dilute the woke agenda to irrelevance rather than simply canceling it in return. Well, Vivek, you are unsurprisingly a very busy man, so I will uh, let you go Um say thank you very much indeed for joining us. I hope that the steps you've just talked about, um, that you guys can be successful in implementing them because they say that when America sneezes, Britain catches a cold. Um, so we have to just hope that um, we aren't you know, heading down the same track here uh, ourselves. But thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, John. Pleasure. Pleasure.